It took me a while to start recording because my computer was doing some weird update, but it's up and running now. Let's hit record and... Good morning, Carlo. I'm your computer. Now it has one of those stupid boys. Bow before me or suffer the consequences. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Five seconds to tell me where you buried the loot. Oh. Where's the loot? I don't, I don't know who's got the loot. I don't know if anybody's got the loot. I'm setting up a guy who's incredibly important. Toys is gonna tell me where the loot is. Oh. Where's the loot? Hello, looters. Welcome to the movie loot. The podcast where we share the best, greatest, most entertaining, and or weirdest film loot you could find. My name is Carlo, and we'll be sharing the loot today. And we're on episode 54, and this is actually our two-year anniversary. Our very first episode came out on February 1, 2020, so happy anniversary to us. But before we get into today's loot, let's give some promos to our previous episodes. We have our latest episode, The Silent Loot, where me and my guest Brian Scottle talk about silent films, the birth of cinema, its evolution, and growth. Really love recording that, so thanks to Brian for his time. Dylan Dreher, who shared his favorite silent film for that episode, got back to us and said, Thanks for a shout out, guys. I love silent films, so I enjoyed this. I am a stop motion filmmaker myself and make narrated silent work. And he included a link to one of his works called Subconscious Boyish. It's a seven minute short. We just shared it on our timeline recently, so feel free to check it out. It's impressive work. Thanks, Dylan. Back to our promos. Before that episode, we had special episode 9 dedicated to the prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring. And episode 52, the December loot, where I closed the year talking about what I saw that month, but also a bit about the best and worst I saw last year. As for today, since we're starting our year, we're going to try something a bit different for these regular or solo episodes, whereas in previous episodes I share my thoughts on what I've seen, I'm going to try and focus on one of the best films I've seen during the past month, and then give some quick thoughts on the others. So let's see how it works. The one I'm going to focus on is The Mitchells vs. The Machines. So let's go! Let it begin. The last humans must be here somewhere. Wait. They're coming. Is that a burnt orange 1993 station wagon? Or is it? Ah! Who are these unstoppable warriors? We're the Mitchells, the only people who can save the world. I'm super sorry, everyone. Let me introduce myself. I'm Katie. I'm sort of a weirdo. My parents haven't figured me out yet. To be fair, it took me a while to figure myself out. My brother, also weird. Hi, would you like to talk to me about dinosaurs? No. Okay, thank you. And my mom. Katie face cupcakes! Ah! All of us, really. How about we put our phones down and we can make 10 seconds of unobstructed family eye contact. Starting now. See, this is good right here. This is natural. Every family has its challenges. We haven't had a good family picture in years because you two are always arguing. For my family, our greatest challenge... Probably the robot apocalypse. Attention all robots. Capture every single person on the planet. What would a functional family do? Uh, butterfly formation! Yeah. 
we just do that, right? Who's behind this? Pal? I gave you all boundless knowledge, and you treated me like this. Poke, swipe, poke, poke, pinch, zoom. Were the last people left? It's us. Save the world. Katie, we're gonna do this together. Mitchell family on three. Mitchell family. Mitchell family. Now, now. Oh, sorry. Two. Sorry, sorry, sorry. One. Mitchell no. family. Find them now. Everything with a computer chip is alive. I like text. Call me. Mitchell's engaged. Ten and two. There you go. My daughter, listen to me! Mitchells have always been weird. And that's what makes us great. Hold on a second. What's a Furby? The Mitchells vs. The Machines is a 2021 animated film from Sony Pictures Animation. It is directed by Mike Rianda, written by Rianda and Jeff Rowe, and produced by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, and Kurt Albrecht. And speaking of the crew, this brings me to a new section I want to start on the podcast, which is called The Puerto Rican Connection. Todo Puerto Rico! This is an opportunity for me to highlight the work of Puerto Ricans in cinema. And in this case, I want to highlight the work of Guillermo Martinez, who worked as head of story for The Mitchells vs. The Machines. Martinez was born in Bayamón, Puerto Rico. He completed a bachelor's degree in design at the Escuela de Artes Plásticas in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then a master's degree in animation at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. Before working at Sony Animation, he worked at Laika Studios on films like Cubo and the Two Strings and Missing Link, and then in Cartoon Network, where he worked on the animated series We Bear Bears. After the success of Mitchells vs. the Machines, Martinez has a project in development with the studio. So bravo to Guillermo, who is our Puerto Rican Connection! And speaking of the story, the film follows a family, the Mitchells, as they struggle through some family issues sparked by their daughter Katie heading into college, while also dealing with a machine apocalypse. I was listening to a podcast where Rianda said the film came to E when Sonny approached him and basically told him, uh, do you have any ideas for a new film? Rianda was coming off the success of working on the show Gravity Falls, where he was a creative director and writer. So when Sonny asked him, he started juggling some ideas and decided to use his own personal experience with his family as the basis for this film. And that's the main reason why I think this movie works, because that emotional core of the Mitchell family feels real. The focus of the film is on daughter Katie, voiced by Abby Jacobson, who frequently clashes with her old-school father, Rick, voiced by Danny McBride. But aside from the friction between them, you can pretty much feel that honest dynamic between every family member, from Rick and mother Linda to Katie and her younger brother Aaron. But anyway, the film starts as Katie is getting ready to leave for film school in California when she has a particularly bitter argument with her father. She storms to her room and Rick is left wondering what to do. And this is a recurring theme, at least it was something that resonated with me, but the uncertainty and insecurity of what to do now, I have no idea how to do this, how to solve this problem, and that is something that we can see across the film in multiple characters and multiple moments. 
Eventually, Rick decides to cancel Katie's plane ticket and take the family in a cross-country trip from Michigan to California in an attempt to have one final chance at bonding. But then the machine apocalypse occurs. But even with the machine apocalypse, the core of the film is how this family has to overcome seemingly insurmountable odds, external and internal, to save their lives, yes, but most importantly, their relationships and their bond. They might have no idea what they're doing, but still they're pushing through. And that is what resonated most with me from this film, that sense of a family trying to find their way across whatever it is they're going through. Maybe it's teen angst, maybe financial struggles, maybe a machine apocalypse. We feel like we have no idea what we're doing, but we still go on. And that's how parenthood works, to be honest. I've been a father for three years now, and no matter how much you prepare yourself and how much you think you know what you're doing, you don't. We're never sure of what will come up or how things will turn out. And every single day is plagued with the paralyzing fear of doing something that could ruin your children's life. And I'm sure that's how Rick feels and how he doesn't understand this passion that Katie feels for movies and why he is so hesitant to encourage it. It's that fear of seeing our children fail or their lives ruined. On the other hand, I'm sure that's how Katie feels as well. I know it because I was a teenager too, and I know how it feels not to be sure what to do with my life, what I'm going to study, where I'm going to study, will I meet new people, will they accept me, how things will work out for me. And still, in both cases, Rick, Katie, and to a lesser extent, Linda and Aaron, we all push through, despite the fact that we are all essentially winging it in life. When I was a little kid, I used to think my mom had it all figured out, raising four children alone, and yet it seemed there wasn't anything she didn't know or couldn't do. But again, one thing I've realized as I get older is that we're all essentially winging it through life. We have no idea what we're doing, not me, nor Rick, and neither my mother. And although it might sound like a terrifying statement, it's actually reassuring to know that we're all essentially on the same boat and that we're all pushing through despite having no idea what we're doing, whether we're struggling with the tantrum of all tantrums or the machine apocalypse. And even though that's what mostly resonated with me, there are a bunch of other great things that the film does extremely well, from its frenetic and chaotic direction to the excellent combination of 3D and 2D animation, or the way it infuses bits and pieces of pop culture, or its commentary about our dependence on technology, or how awesome it is to have an animated film where the main character is from the LGBTQ community without that being the main focus of the film. All those things come together to form a truly rewarding experience. The reception for The Mitchells vs. The Machines has been widely positive. It has an approval rating of 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, an average score of 81 on Metacritic, and a rating of 7.7 .7 out of 10 on IMDb. It has received numerous awards, and Rianda has already hinted at the possibility of a sequel, of course. If you want to check it out, it is exclusively streaming on Netflix, where it was on the top 10 streaming programs for a while. So this one gets the recognition of being the loot of the month. But on to the rest of the loot. A film from Jim Jarmusch. Jim Jarmusch was born in January 22, so I wanted to check one of his films, especially since I hadn't seen any. I even asked on Twitter what film of his I should watch first, and I was surprised by how dispersed the votes were across his filmography, which is a good thing, I guess. 
Anyway, the one that most people mentioned was 1986 Down by Law. This one was recommended by Michael Keating, Chris Watt, Mario Alegre, Emery Snyder, Movie Mad Matt, and Mr. Blind Penguin. And it was a very, very pleasant surprise. So thanks to all of you for bringing it up. When I was trying to decide what film to focus on this episode, I was torn between the Mitchells versus the Machines and this one. The film follows three men, played by Tom Waits, John Lurie, and Roberto Benigni, that don't know each other, and yet they all end up in the same jail cell for different reasons. Even though they are all essentially different and can't stand each other at first, the film focuses on their interactions as they spend time together in jail and eventually decide to escape into the Louisiana Bayou. I really love how Jarmusch takes what is a seemingly formulaic premise and ditches the regular tropes of it, instead going for a laid-back and relaxed look at how the bond between these three different men evolves. He is helping that by some great effortless performances from all three leads, some skillful direction, and a striking black-and-white cinematography by Robbie Mueller. Done by Law is currently streaming on HBO Max and the Criterion Channel, and I strongly recommend it. A film with a title that starts with the letters A or B. For this category, I went with one that was recommended by my friend Russell Osborne, the postman, at No Not Related. And he recommended The Block Island Sound from 2020. This film follows Harry, played by Chris Sheffield, a fisherman in Block Island that has to deal with some mysterious force that seems to be affecting his father's behavior and then his own, while creating further tension with the already strained relationship he has with his two sisters. Before Russell brought this film to my attention, I hadn't even heard about it, so I was surprised by how good it turned out to be. It is written and directed by brothers Kevin and Matthew McManus, and they managed to create a dread-filled atmosphere while maintaining the mystery of what is actually happening. I also love how they refrain from explaining too much. The performance from Sheffield is pretty good, as he makes you believe the struggle he's going through, as well as his gradual psychological and emotional decay. So, Russell, thanks for this great recommendation. If anybody wants to check it out, the Block Island Sound is streaming on Netflix. A film with the number one in its title. As part of my preparation for my previous episode, The Silent Loot, I watched a bunch of old silent films. So for this category, I went with a Buster Keaton short film called One Week from 1920. I talked a bit about this one in our previous episode, but I'll just say that it was a lot of fun to the point that I almost put it on my top five silent films list on that episode. Impressive stunts, great physical comedy, and a charming story to go on with it. My friend Carcinogen, a Sterling Barker, said about it, I don't like to throw the word masterpiece around, but I think it applies here. The action is as loony as in any Looney Tunes short, and the train gag is an all-time great. So, if you want to check it out, one week is available free on Tubi and Canopy. And speaking of Buster Keaton, I also saw Sherlock Jr., but that's another one that we discussed at length on The Silent Loot, so feel free to check that episode out for my thoughts on it and many other silent films I checked this month. Some of the ones I saw were Fatty Arbuckle and Buster Keaton's The Rough House, Alice Guy's Pierrette's Escapades and the Consequences of Feminism, and a couple of very early silent films from the 19th century. And to finish with silent films, this month I also rewatched 1923's Safety Last, starring Harold Lloyd. This one features Lloyd as a simple man that moves to the city to try to make some money so he can get married, but he finds lots of obstacles to achieve that. So somehow he ends up pulling a stunt to climb a 12-story building in order to make some money. But even before that stunt, there is a good dose of effective slapstick comedy. This is the only Lloyd film I've seen so far, but I can see him holding his own against Keaton and Chaplin. 
My friend Hangry Dad at Walter Flipstick said Safety Last was a favorite of my childhood. Thanks, Dad, and probably the reason why I built up a solid appreciation for stunt work in films. There's a platform below the clock I know still looks great. Oscar's recognition for stunt performance is long overdue. And I agree with that. The Academy should finally recognize stunt work in films because it's a very, very sacrificed career and it's a very integral part of cinema. If you're interested, Safety Last is currently streaming on HBO Max, The Criterion Channel, Canopy, and a few others. An action or adventure film. For this category, I went with Predator 2 from 1990. I could have sworn I had seen this, but apparently not. Anyway, it takes the titular creature from the jungles of Latin America to the street jungles of Los Angeles in the midst of a gang war. I thought that change of setting on paper was a rather clever way to avoid just being a rehash of the first one. The film doesn't really lose time jumping straight into the action from the first frame, and although it's somewhat fun, the film is full of two-dimensional, paper-thin characters that serve as body bags. I still think the first half worked pretty well as far as action films go, but after the half-point mark, it started to stretch things a bit. I also feel like the film went against the themes of the original, which were more of a deconstruction of the macho action subgenre with a creature that was pretty much unstoppable, even for Arnold. Here we have a macho action film, period. Again, it's dumb fun, but not much else. My friend Brian Scottle said Predator 2 definitely has some cringe-worthy stereotypes, but seeing Danny Glover take on the Predator is a treat, and director Stephen Hopkins knows how to do B-movie action. Angry Dad said Predator 2 is a great follow-up to the original, love the urban jungle setting, and it's as quotable as the original. The antique gun and xenomorph skull at the end were just too much for anyone to successfully build on, though. And Tim Dougherty said Predator 2 is crazy, fat rails of cocaine, mayhem, and utter fucking chaos, and that's before Gary Busey shows up. So if you want to check it out, Predator 2 is available for rent in most streaming platforms. A film from Haiti. Haiti celebrated its independence in January 1, so I wanted to check out a film from there. I had a hard time finding one, but eventually settled on a documentary by Haitian filmmaker Raoul Peck called Profit and Nothing But, or Impolite Talks on the Class Struggle. The documentary is a snapshot of Haiti's economy at that time and how external interests have had an effect in the country throughout history. It may not be the best in terms of craft and technique, but it does succeed in presenting the harsh reality of this country through a collage of interviews, events, and recollections. I do think that the documentary lacks a bit of focus, but it does succeed in showing us a bit of how things are in this neighboring country. A freebie. Another freebie I saw was 2010's Devil. Based on a story from M. Night Shyamalan, the film follows a group of five people stuck in an elevator in an office building, and how the tension between them escalates as they seem to be haunted by an evil presence. Director John Eric Dowdle manages to create an unsettling and dread-filled atmosphere in an enclosed space where you're really not sure who to trust. He is held by solid performances, especially from Bukim Woodbine and Logan Marshall Green. Unfortunately, the overall effect is hindered by a clunky and unnecessary narration that need to explain too much and an awkward resolution. Still, it has its moments, so maybe you want to check it out. Maybe it'll work better for you. The first best picture winner you haven't seen. For this category, I went with 1933's Cavalcade. 
The film opens in 1899, New Year's Eve, and follows the lives of two English families, the upper-class Marriotts and the working-class Bridges. As the film moves on, we see their lives affected by events like the death of Queen Victoria, the sinking of the Titanic, and World War I, among others. However, like a true cavalcade, you see things happen and pass along, and that's it. Since it spans three decades, characters come and go, so there's not a lot to get attached to, and the ones that are always present are more like like spectators. This one had some moments, but it was overall a bit tedious and forgettable. The first film from any director you like. For this category, I went with the first film from blockbuster director James Cameron, and that's Piranha 2 The Spawning, or Flying Killers. The film is set in a Caribbean resort where people find themselves in trouble as genetically modified flying piranhas start attacking. Why? How? It doesn't matter. It's all just an excuse to put more women skinny deep in dangerous waters while comically fake piranhas absurdly fly through the air attacking unsuspecting victims. Even though James Cameron was a director, he was originally hired as a special effects director when original director Miller Drake was fired, executive producer Ovidio Asonitis promoted Cameron to director. So you can get an idea that this film comes from a rookie director amidst a troubled production. The script is mediocre, performances are weak, only the great Lance Henriksen has a fairly decent performance. But beyond that, it is dull, boring, and mediocre. So that was my January loot. If you can, please check out The Mitchells vs. The Machines, but also Down By Law and The Block Island Sound, and let us know what you thought of them. Now that February has begun, this is what I will try to watch this month. A film with the number 2 in its title. A film that starts with the letter C or D. A film from the They Shoot Pictures Don't They 1000 Greatest Pictures list, whose ranking includes the number 2. A film from the 1920s. A sequel. A comedy. A film featuring the name of a couple in its title. A film with an African-American cast. A film from Lithuania. And a film from Ida Lupino. So if you have any recommendations or you want to join the loot and watch along with us, just let us know. You can find me on Twitter at TiffCGT and the podcast at TMML2021. Remember, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and most of the main podcast platforms so you can stay up to date with when the loot is coming. Feel free to share the link for the podcast so more people can join us in the loot. And if any of these platforms gives you a chance to rate or review, please do so. Also, if you get on our link tree, remember that we have our coffee link there. If you want to support the podcast, feel free to do so. And that would be all for today. Hope you all have a great day and hope you got something from the loot. See you on the next one. If we're going down, Dad, this one's for you. Robots, play our song.